Now, what's very interesting about this text is that it is rather abrupt, is it not? Sort of comes out of nowhere. Paul talks about there bearing his heart in verses 11 to 13, talking about, look, open up to us. Be like children. Open up your heart to us. We've been transparent with you. Therefore, reciprocate that and be transparent with us. The very next verse, 14, says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. So it's almost like that transparency passage prepares the way, sort of paves the way for this exhortation, for this admonition that is coming in verse 14. It's as if the Apostle Paul has had to talk to them about transparency in order to admonish them, to correct them. He does the same very thing in chapter 10. Uh, verse 1, right before he issues a rebuke, he first admonishes them, as he says there, according to the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus Christ. And so he's doing it with that tone. But there are some unhealthy relationships in Corinth. There are unhealthy unions. There are unhealthy uh, partnerships that the Christians in Corinth were undergoing that need to be addressed, indeed, need to be rebuked. And Paul does that without hesitation. The Apostle Paul is such a wonderful pastor. He's just not afraid to confront us where we fall, where we fail. He's not afraid to confront us of our faults and failures and sins. He's not afraid of confrontation. Confrontation is a difficult thing, isn't it? I can't tell you how many people I've heard tell me, I hate confrontation. Not that I love it. Don't get some morbid idea of me or anything. But uh, confrontation is not fun, let's face it. But the Apostle Paul does it out of a heart of love, and that's what 11 to 13 shows us, that it is out of the bottom of a loving pastoral heart that he admonishes this church, pruning and clipping away all of the diseases and viruses and all of the things that would make for an unhealthy flock, like a wise and caring and circumspect shepherd. He wants to inspect the flock and see how it's doing and see where it's unhealthy and come in and offer remedy. That's what he's doing. Now, the very first thing I want to show you is that he begins sort of with a broad spectrum of unhealthy relationships. So point number one, this is a call to holiness, but the first thing is that this is a call to separate from incompatible influences or incompatible relationships. Let's read verse 14 and 15 together again. He says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship have light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? That is sort of, thank you, I brought my own, but I'll take this too. I won't deny a blessing. Um, but uh, as you can see there, it begins with this general statement. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. If you would, in the exegesis of this passage, that sort of stands as a banner over this text. In other words, that is sort of the main idea, and now he's going to begin to trickle down all the particulars beneath it. And the reason I say that is because he uses this word, bound together. It's a very intentional word. It's actually a word that Paul, as a Jew, would have derived from Old Testament imagery. He's not getting it out of anywhere. 
He's not just pulling it out of the air. He's not dribbling out random thoughts. Remember, Paul is a scholar. He is an Old Testament scholar, and he uses a word that is really, really uh, uh, intentional here. It, it conjures up imagery of agricultural types, agricultural metaphors. As a matter of fact, the word he uses here, bound together, or if you have an ESV in front of you, it says unequally yoked. I actually like that word better, unequally yoked, because the word here is heterosugeo. And that's a two-part Greek word, heteros and sugeo. And what it's meaning is other-yoked. Other-yoked. You are yoked with something that is off, something that is other, something that is mismatched. And that's what's going on. Matter of fact, the translators of the Hebrew Bible, when they translated it into the Greek language, the Septuagint, they used this word in places like Leviticus 19, verse 19, Deuteronomy 22, verse 10. Actually, in Deuteronomy 22, it's, uh, it's used of, hey, don't put an ox with a donkey. And don't lay a heavy yoke on both of them because guess what? It, the yoke's going to look like this. That poor donkey is going to be getting pulled down by the ox. And what in, what's going to end up happening is that if you don't deal with your livestock in a proper way, you're going to end up abusing your livestock. And God doesn't like any kind of abuse or oppression. It was an unhealthy yoking situation in, the, in these animals that will cause one to either fall or be injured or be abused or something. It was just ineffective. And in a similar way, when we are yoked together with unbelievers, there will result a spiritual stagnation. There will result in an inhibited progress in your sanctification. Tell me that you don't bear witness with that. That when you've been in certain circumstances or situations or in certain relationships, let's say with your family members or let's say at work with your coworkers, don't you feel the unevenness in the conversations, in the family reunion. I remember when the Lord saved me. I was 19 years old, and um, I don't know how, but out came this fire and brimstone preacher. That's all, I, that's all that was on my mind. You can ask my sister. All I wanted to preach was hell because I was so overwhelmed by this idea that all of my family members who are drunkards and liars and thieves and blasphemers and fornicators and adulterers are all going to perish. And so I remember one Christmas occasion standing before many of my family members and proclaiming the gospel to them and telling them exactly what I just felt. I don't know if it came out right. It probably didn't sound very good. It probably sounded kind of rough around the edges. And uh, it was probably not something pretty. But I was so overwhelmed by the idea that my uncles, my, my cousins, my, my aunts are all, they're going to end up in hell. And they're going to be in there for all eternity burning in the lake of fire. I believe this. And I can tell you it was such an uneven relationship after that after that it was just difficult to get along with the family i'd grown up with with cousins that i'd grown up with i remember being in a car with a cousin of mine once and i put on a christian radio station he got so angry he shut it and he he said oh that's enough of that and he turned off the radio with great disdain 
I could tell you it was a tense moment in that car. I was just trying to get at him, you know, trying to witness somehow, get it in there. But this is what God does. Brothers and sisters, when you become a Christian, this is what God does to you. He separates you. Jesus said, the world will hate you because I called you out of the world. If the world doesn't hate you, my dear friends, if you can just blend right in with all the blasphemy at work, if you can just blend right in with all the filthy, dirty jokes at the job place, something is wrong. You, have not, you are not sanctifying yourself. You're not setting yourself apart. If at the family get-together, you're sitting around with family members and you're just, you're just going along with all the, 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 the blasphemy, the dirty jokes, or all the unbelieving worldviews, right? Something is wrong. That's not what God saved us for. Now, to show us this, this principle then, he launches into giving a series of antithesis. Antithesis. There's actually five of them. The first one is this. Paul goes on to say, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what's interesting about this passage, okay, is that Paul actually uses a different word for every antithesis, including the one that introduced the whole text, being bound together. Being bound together is a different word than the word partnership. Fellowship is a different word than partnership. Harmony is a different word than partnership or fellowship. In common with unbelievers, that's a different word. See, Paul is groping for language to try to describe to us the foreign nature of our union with unbelievers that it should be. He's trying to just show us just how alien we ought to be who have the life of God residing in our souls and who individually and corporately comprise the temple of God. The temple was a very sobering place. The temple was the place that God consumed offerings. The temple was the place where God's presence would manifest Fearful, terrifying, consuming fire. It would often consume sinful priests. And they would drop dead in their sin. The temple is not, you know, some ancient artifact of archaeology. The temple symbolizes for the people of God the chosen place of his special presence. We'll get there. The first one is this. What partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Now, obviously, this is Sunday school stuff, right? You ask a little kid, hey, what, what partnership does righteousness and lawlessness have? And the question might be, well, what is lawlessness? Right? Sin, evil, the word lawless means against or no law, literally. A, a life that is lived with a complete, uh, a complete undermining of the law of God. With no parameters, no perimeters, no, uh, no, no boundaries. Righteousness is the opposite of that. Righteousness is conformity to God's perfect moral law. It is perfect conformity to the ways and statutes and laws and ordinances and standards and ethics of God. That's what righteousness is. And there's no fellowship there. And it is this very principle of righteousness and lawlessness that separates unbeliever from believer. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 this is, listen to what the Apostle Paul John says, because in this text, 1 John 3.10, he says, look, you can distinguish 
between the regenerate and the unregenerate, the righteous and the wicked, the godly and the wicked, by this very thing. Here are the children of God and the children of the devil, obvious or manifest. He says, everyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You know, it's amazing about that text right there in 1 John is that immediately after that, John goes into the fact that, un, that we are not like Cain. Cain did what? He killed his brother. We lay down our life for our brothers. The antithesis couldn't be any greater than that. We're not lawless. We love God's law. We treasure God's laws. And as a matter of fact, unbelievers are already engaged in lawlessness by, very, by the very fact that they are unbelievers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this very thing, that God will judge those who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness instead. People will be judged just by the very fact that they have a wicked and unbelieving heart, as the book of Hebrews declares. Unbelief is not a virtue, but we live in a, we live in a world today, don't we? We live in a society where unbelief is praised. Skepticism is probably the number one virtue today in America. I know, I go to the universities. I've gone to the colleges. I listen to the, the up-and-coming bright minds of the future. And you know what they're inundated with? Doubt. Nothing is certain. Nothing is true. Nothing is real. Nothing is absolute. I, I can't tell you how many people, just unthinking, unthinkably, breathtakingly, will tell you to your face, I don't even know if I exist. And this is virtue. This is looked upon as virtuous. Because dogma and certainty and, and absolute truth and things like that are absolutely bigoted because you claim to know something that others don't know, because you claim to have a truth above everybody else. It is a complete discrimination against those who know something for certain. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we've already looked at this, but this is the point of the lawless that they, they are blinded by the God of this age. He has blinded the minds of who? The unbelieving. So that they would not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Righteousness and lawlessness. They can't, because they are unrighteous, because they are lawless, they cannot see the light. Therefore, the second antithesis is closely connected this sort of these metaphors of light and darkness all throughout the Word of God. If you look at chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, darkness and light, those metaphors are metaphors for salvation. Either salvation or condemnation. Either being in the sphere of God's saving love and saving work or being in the sphere of God's judgment and wrath and God's condemnation. And he says, look, what fellowship has light with darkness? All of these rhetorical questions demand a negative response. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I don't even think we understand how antithetical our new nature is to the world. 
I think the more we, 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 we tap into this, the more we understand just how fundamentally God has changed believers. We have a completely different set of standards when it comes to the issues of morality and ethics. All of the different things that comprise our life, economics, the way you handle your money, everything has changed because of Christ. We are what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 17, a new creation. All the old things, the former things, the way you used to live your life, all of those things have passed away. Now you've been completely redefined. Now you are in the light, as 1 John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, God is in the light, therefore we ought to walk in the light where He is. And again, the light, speaking there of the moral purity of God, the moral excellency of God, and this is what we strive after. We strive to enter the light where God is in the light, to dwell in the light, to be blessed by the God of light. You have to put on the armor of light. As Romans tells us, Jesus is the ultimate light. And by virtue of our union with Him, we are now associated with the light. And you know what the light does? The light exposes. You join yourself to Jesus, associate yourself with Jesus, identify yourself with Jesus, and you're identifying yourself with a convicting, sin-destroying, morally upright light, morally pure light that the world hates. Uh, John, the Gospel of John, that's why it's not surprising that the letters of John are filled with light and darkness language. But in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and if you're going to follow after him, you won't walk in darkness. You will no longer walk in your sin, the sin that used to describe you, but you will have the light of life. John 12, 45, again, he says, I have come as light into the world. See, he is the light, and he comes as a light into the world. He is himself perfect purity, perfect morality, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness. And when he comes into the world, he showers the world. He literally emanates into the world that type of standard of moral excellence. And the world, because it is dark, doesn't come to the light. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 21, probably the best passage on this. He says, this is the judgment do you know why people will die and be judged for their sin and go to hell for all eternity? This is why, John says, because light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. See, it's about what men love. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one or you will despise the other. By loving darkness, they hate the light. And that's exactly what the text goes on to say. Everyone who does evil. So there's no question what he's talking about. Metaphor over. We're talking about deeds that are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. It is an active and it is a continuous hatred towards God's light through Jesus Christ. But he who practices the truth comes to the light 
so that his deeds may be clearly manifest that he that that having been wrought in God would that we could stay right there for the rest of the afternoon but we can't we got to move on the next one is also uh, uh, telling of the moral uh, excellence to which we are called only this time the apostle gives us the source if you would in the next contrast here in the third contrast he says what harmony has christ with belial to see the antithesis to see the difference to see the contrast you cannot get any more deep than comparing jesus to satan you want to know where the, the fountain of these two uh, opposing and antithetical worldviews come from? They either come from Christ or they come from Satan. Now, the word belial, interesting word, right? comes from the Hebrew word belial. And the Hebrew is used in the Old Testament to refer mostly to people. As a matter of fact, in Judges chapter 19, the writers there use this word Belial to refer to certain worthless men, homosexual men in the context. They are called Belial, Bain Belial, worthless sons, sons of worthlessness. That's what the word Belial means. It means that which is worthless in the sight of God in the sight of God. And in the intertestamental literature of Paul's time, when he looked at the intertestamental times and the intertestamental rabbinical literature of that day, this was often and always used in contrast to Yahweh. In matter of fact, in many of the rabbinical traditions, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found scrolls containing the, the, the idea that Belial is the enemy of Yahweh. But it has never, ever been used, until Paul, as a comparison between Satan and Jesus. It was always in connection to Yahweh. What does that say about Jesus' deity? Satan himself is opposed to Christ. He is the enemy of Christ. He is his, his direct opposition. And that's why Paul says we are, to this degree, antithetical to unbelievers. <laughs> I need to bring in some serious qualifications in this sermon. <laughs> I don't want you guys going out these doors <laughs> into the world and standing in front of the cashier and going, you're a son of Belial? Can I buy this from you, this unequally yoked? Certainly that's not what it means. But it is getting at something, isn't it? That Christians have a perspective on life that is so wildly different than the average person, your neighbor. See, our eyes have been opened. The veil has been removed. The blinders have been taken away. If you would, we see a world beneath the world. We see, a, we see the reality under the reality that everybody else sees. We see that in this life, it is comprised of those who are either in Christ or those who are either in Adam, those who are either uh, regenerate and have the life of God in them and those who are unregenerate and are dead and trespasses and sins. There are only two kinds of people in this world, dead people and alive people. And if you're not in Jesus, as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. 
But as this text is suggesting, this antithesis right here, Christ or Satan, you are either led by one or the other. Your life, your conduct, your lifestyle conforms to one or the other. Let me read you some verses on this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The unbeliever is he who walks according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You see, there is a course, there's an influence, there's a path, there is a, there is a governing worldview that all unbelievers abide by, and it is fundamentally antichrist. That is the fundamental commonality. Oh, it comes in different shapes and sizes. It's what Paul will go on to call the worthless elemental principles of the world. You know what that means? Man-made religion. That's what the elemental principles of the world are. The stoicheo. They are the, fun, the elements, the, the principles that man in his own limited, finite, sinful condition, this is all he can come up with apart from God. Apart from Christ. And to show you how deep the influence goes, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 to 26 prove that, that people who are not yoked with Christ, that are not in, a, in harmony with Christ, are actually yoked in harmony with Satan himself and that are under his dominion. It says of those false teachers who we are to correct in gentleness... It says, perhaps God might grant them repentance. We don't know. Maybe God will grant them repentance. And so we don't want to put a stumbling block in front of that. We want to deal gently with people. We want to correct people in gentleness, in humility. And he says, these are those who, if they come to repentance, they will, they will come to their senses and they will escape the snare of the devil. And then this qualifying participial phrase, having been held captive by him to do his will. Satan is, is doing his will through unbelievers all over the world. That's how he accomplishes his ends. Don't ask me exactly how it works. I just know scripture teaches it. People are under his influence. They're being moved around by him. I mean, come on. You don't think that when a person gets it in his heart and his mind to go and kill or rape and murder a person, they are not being influenced directly by Satan? Of course they are. They're not just making bad psychological choices. We are so, we are so naturalist today. We are so anti-supernatural today in the church. We want to try to explain things away through psychology, medicine, ADD, and everything else. We can believe that there are spiritual forces at work that are colliding, cosmic forces of a spiritual nature, either angelic, either of God, either divine, or either demonic, satanic forces at work. This is what's involved in this separation. There is no harmony there. These are completely antithetical. And then look at the next one. He says, what, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? This is the fourth one. And it's a different word. The word in common literally means to have a part with. It means that you share in a common portion. In other words, there is a body of truth. There is a body of beliefs. 
there was a, there was a group, a, a deposit of ideas that you share together. And it also, it also indicates this idea that you are both striving towards common activities. But that's not what we are about. We don't have that type of fellowship with unbelievers. Now, in the next section of this text, Paul moves to a more, uh, a more specific focus. Not only does he call us away from incompatible influences, but now he calls us to be separate from idolatrous influences. And he really latches on to this idea throughout the rest of the context. Look at verse 16 again with me. Verse 16. He says, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Common, familiar words from the Old Testament. But here the Apostle Paul is calling them away from any type of idolatrous compromise. Now if you know anything about the situation in Corinth, you know that there was compromise with idolatry. There were people stumbling other Christians by eating food sacrificed to idols. There were even some Christians who were compromising, going into the temple of idols. There was, there was all this compromise going on. To see that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, the Apostle Paul tells them quite explicitly, flee idolatry. Get away from idolatry. Now, in Corinth, idolatry was big business. The selling of idols, the selling of idolatrous little figurines. There was idols all over the city, idols everywhere. As a matter of fact, someone somewhere has said there was probably more idols than there was people in certain Roman provinces. More idols than people? Talk about a city being given over to idolatry. And Paul is saying, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? None whatsoever. And if you know your Old Testament, you know just how much God hates idolatry in His people. Uh, for proof of this, just read Ezekiel chapter 6 through 9. In Ezekiel 6 through 9, He assures the people that He will not spare them, He will not show any pity towards them as He commands the killing of various priests in the vision that he gives to Ezekiel there in chapter 9. This is how much God hates and detests idolatry. So let me say this. You say, well, yeah, but pastor, there's no idols in Frisco. I'm not driving around seeing idols of Ashtoreth in Frisco, okay? So what, what, how does this apply now? Well, I'll tell you how it would apply. It would apply first and foremost in our worship services that we don't compromise our worship with any form of idolatry. There are churches, and you know, uh, I'm sure you know about this, and I can't even believe it, but there are some churches, actually no one nearby where I live, of a big church that actually had an interfaith dialogue in the service of the church where rabbis and Muslims were allowed to come in and to kind of share with us how they worship. No, my friends, the only reason I would even be open to the idea of having a Muslim in the church 
either he's coming to hear the word of God or there's a formal debate. Let's say James White's debating a Muslim. Okay, you know, I might get on board with that. But I'm not going to have interfaith dialogues where people are free to come into the church of God and spread their demonic doctrines. That's what the Bible calls false teaching, doctrines of demons. There is demonic activity behind that doctrine. And we should never compromise in that way. And so, Paul is really touching on the ancient sin of Israel, which was what? Syncretism. You heard of syncretism? Syncretism is the idea that you can blend the worship of Yahweh with the worship of pagans. And this is what was going on through Baal worship. All throughout the minor prophets, you see this. You see this in the life of the kings where they begin to erect the high places, altars to pagan gods, and they try to mix and mash. In the book of Hosea, it sounds like God's people don't even know the difference anymore between Yahweh and Baal. As a matter of fact, in Hosea, I think it's chapter 2, it says they, they will no longer call me Bali, which is a form of Baal worship. Just amazing. God is calling us to be separate, and He's showing us. You know what it's showing us? Showing the reason why we don't compromise with unbelievers in these ways is because God doesn't. That's all it is. The sermon could have been over just with that statement. It's just showing us, why don't we do things? Because God doesn't do it. Why, why don't we compromise in relationships? Because God doesn't compromise. And you know what relationship he points to in order to show us this? His covenant relationship with his people. Now you know that because he uses covenant language. After he says, we are the temple of the living God. And oftentimes when the idea of the living God is being invoked, it is specifically to contrast the true and living God from idols. As a matter of fact, you find those, those kinds of phrases in the, the language of the living God. He is not only the living God, but He is also the true God, the only God. You know, there's a really, there's a really old, tired argument that atheists like to use. They say, well, you're atheists too. You say there are no, you know, you say no to all these millions of gods, and we're just one God more than you. And you know, the reason why that's false is because there is only one God. There is only one God to deny, and it is the true and living God, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible. That's it. There are no other gods to deny because there are no other gods. They are false gods. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they are not gods at all. They are not gods at all. But this whole idea then supported in talking about being the temple of God is supported by the, the blessed promise of God's presence, His special presence among His covenant people. Look at this, verse 16 again. They're the second part of verse 16. He says, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there are several things that are going on there. First, God is promising his special presence, not only to walk among them, but notice this, to dwell in them. And I take that to mean this is why we can't interpret this passage solely on a corporate level. 
Meaning, we can't interpret this passage solely in terms of what the church corporately, collectively, holistically is doing, but individually. Since this passage is speaking about God literally dwelling inside of our hearts, inside of individual hearts, after all, Paul says, you are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. And that's why you wouldn't take the temple of God and join it to idols or join it to prostitutes or join, et cetera, et cetera. Because in your very physical, corporeal body, you somehow mystically and spiritually make up and comprise God's special house. And so we need a clean house. And that's what Paul is calling them to do. He wants them to clean house. God not only dwells among them, walks among them, but He also dwells within them. You know, in Israel, the fact that God's presence was there with them, that was a distinguishing description of the people of God. Unlike all the other pagan gods and all the other pagan nations, they did not have God in their midst. As a matter of fact, it doesn't work. To put God's presence in the midst of pagans, it's an unequally yoked union. You can see that in the, uh, the episode where the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, which is a symbol of the very presence of God, actually turns out to be judgment for them. And it needs to come back to where it belongs, in the midst of God's covenant community. And we are that covenant community. In the new covenant, we have, we have privileges beyond your wildest dreams. You have God dwelling in your heart by faith, every single one of us. Unlike the Old Testament, where in the old covenant, there was a mixed multitude. In the covenant, you gave the covenant sign of circumcision to everyone, to all the male children as a symbol that everyone and all the families of Judah and Israel were to be the covenant people. But guess what? Many of those people perished. Many of those people did not, did not believe. Many of them were not saved. Many of them perished under the judgment of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, what do you find is God's preservation of a remnant. But in the church, in the new covenant, my friends, I don't believe in a mixed multitude. This is why I disagree with some theologians. I don't believe there's a mixed multitude in the invisible church. There isn't. There may be in the visible church, like right now, I'm looking at visible, right? You're there, right? You're, I'm looking at physical, visible people. Well, I'm sure there are people here who are not saved, but I can't see your heart. I can't see your soul. The souls of many of the children here may not be born again or regenerate, but I can't see it. You can't see it. But God can. God knows His invisible church, and He knows that His true and invisible church is not mixed with unbelievers. This is the supremacy of the new covenant, that it will affect every single person for which it has come. Now, not only is His personal presence bound with us, with His people, He says, I will be their God. God covenants together with His people to be our God. He commits Himself to us. In other words, He's going to be faithful to us. And in the second part of that, He says, and they will be My people. We will be His special people. In other words, 
you know, even when this was spoken back in Leviticus 26, because uh, Paul is quoting Leviticus 26, 9 through 11, or 11 through 12, excuse me. And he's also adapting a certain passage out of Ezekiel 37 to substantiate this argument. And he modifies it to fit a new covenant context. It's really amazing. It's really amazing. But even then, Leviticus 26, oddly enough, I've been studying, some of you know this, I have been studying the book of Leviticus ferociously. That book that, you know, it's just kind of like when kids are told they got to eat their vegetables, you know, before you get to your whatever, the stuff you really like, you know, the cornflakes with all the sugar on it, you got to eat your veggies, right? Stuff, the stuff that kids leave on the plate after the meal's over, right? That's what a lot of people see Leviticus as. Oh, I really want to read all that. How to cleanse the house of a leper and what purification you got to go through for this and that and the other thing. There is a certain beauty in all of that if you have eyes to see how all of that has to do with Jesus Christ. And I would recommend, if you want to study that with me, read Alan Ross's commentary, Holiness to the Lord. And it's an exposition of Leviticus showing how these are not throwaway passages. These are not throwaway chapters in, in the Bible. This is, this is a gold mine. He goes so far as to say you can't understand the gospel apart from the book of Leviticus. And he, what he means by that is if you want to go to the root, if you want to go to the fountain of atonement, isn't atonement important? If you want to know about atonement, the significance of it, the foundations of it, the theology behind it, you cannot but go to Leviticus. And that's why I'm there. I'm still trudging through. And I won't be like a false spiritual guy, okay? It's still hard. But I just, I'm trying to dig and dig. John Piper says, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds. And that's what I'm searching for in Leviticus, diamonds. Leviticus 26, verse 9, listen to what it says. Because within the covenant agreement that God made with his people, he also promised to make them productive. We're almost done. He says, so I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear it out and clear out the old because of the new. He says, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. And this word here, my soul will not reject you. How oh, do you know how glorious this verse is? The word reject literally means get tired of something. God will not get tired of us in the new covenant. He will not reject us. He will never thrust us out and say, oh, I've seen you blown it over and over. Get out, I'm done. You're so unfaithful. You've done so many things to make me want to just quit on you. Praise the Lord that God will not quit on us. That his covenant faithfulness is so supremely superior in the new covenant than anything the people of God had ever seen but for a small remnant. And so, in a new way, as chapter 3 has taught us, the new covenant, the new experience of the blessings, the covenant blessings of God, He will not relent from doing good. Now, as we close, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. 
God's love for us will never fail. His faithfulness unto us is unending. And this is what the new covenant predicts, I believe, in this passage. Jeremiah 32, right after 31, coming out of that whole new covenant section, he talks about in verse 40, this magnificent verse, and if this verse is for you today, if this verse is for you in any way today, which I think it is, it is magnificent beyond your wildest dreams. Listen to what it says. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. That means I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that, and this is the supreme, this is the la creme, la creme of the promise, so that they will not turn away from me because left to yourself, I can guarantee that you would walk away from God before the service is over. As I heard somebody in seminary once say, arguing over the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, saying, I don't know, I think it's possible for you to to walk away if you wanted to. I said, the answer to that statement is this. Then you are surely damned. 100% guaranteed to be damned. Because if you staying in depends on you, you're finished. That's how holy God is, and that's how evil you are. Some people have way too low of a view of their depravity. They've not come to grips with it. He says, I'll put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land and all my heart, uh, excuse me, with all of my heart and with all my soul. I don't know about you, but I get emotional thinking about God saying he will do something with, for me with all his soul. Remarkable that God is going to keep us. Is it any wonder there, if you go back to 2 Corinthians, is it any wonder, therefore, and we'll see more of this, Lord willing, next Lord's Day, but is it any wonder that Paul goes to chapter 7, verse 1, with this crescendo in mind? Therefore, having these promises, the weight of these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves. Let's pray. Father, truly we have such glorious and magnificent promises, such as that I can't even estimate. Forgive, Lord, my pitiful effort to even try to exact what it is that you have done for us. Lord, I feel my effort is so feeble in trying to describe the glories of this. Would you make it plain to your people? I pray that you would show it to us, that we would savor this, this, the blessing of being in covenant with such a faithful, loving, good God. And Lord, for those who are here who are not in covenant with God, are not in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, would you have mercy? Would you defer your anger from them? 
Would you cause them to believe? First Peter says that he will cause you to be born again. Would you cause the new birth among these people today? And help us, Lord, to take our calling serious, to be separate. Help us, Lord, to take our calling serious, to be sanctified, to be distinct and different from the world. Lord, we thank you that we, as your people, both corporately and individually, we are your temple, the temple of the living God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.